0: Third John, much like Second John, uh, really short epistle, short really letter. It's really a personal letter, uh, more than any other letter. It is um, personal. Philemon is personal. I know, and Paul writes to Timothy, but Timothy is written to Timothy, but to get to everybody else in the church. In uh, Third John, John just writes to a guy named Gaius. We don't know. There's a lot of Gaiuses. That's probably. That, by the way, I, didn't, I, I forgot this. The most common Roman name in biblical times was Gaius. There's several in the New Testament. People try to make this one of those. I never know why people try to to make you know, a particular person be somebody else somewhere else. You know, there's a, which Gaius is it? Well, it's probably just his own. I mean, he's probably not part of any other group, um, any other one mentioned, whether in Corinthians or Romans or Acts. It's, it's a common, common name, so there's gonna be a bunch. And um, we don't know what church he was at. He's probably at a church in Asia Minor, where, Paul, where John would write, but evidently, there's a closeness between John and Gaius. And so John just starts off, says, to the, el- the elder, as he identifies himself, to the beloved Gaius. You know, he's, he's close. Now, remember, John is much older. He, he's, he's been around the whole Christian time. Gaius is much younger. Gaius could even be 60 and be much younger than John. It's kind of like I am to some of you. Uh, the one laughing is what I'm talking about. So... At least your hearing's working. So the elder the beloved, Gaius, he says, whom I love in the truth. And then he goes on to say, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be good in health just as your soul prospers. I love you in the truth, the truth of Christ. We love because they are bound by the truth of Jesus. We love each other because we ought to. We love each other because we are bound in truth. He says, I, pr- I pray for you. I want you to prosper and be in good health. Just as your soul prospered. That's, that's just common. That's, there's nothing, this is just a common part of writing back there. He's, he's just saying, I hope you're doing well. I, I pray for your soul to prosper. And you go spiritually. I just want you to be healthy and, and, and be doing okay. Be comfortable. Just, we do that all the time. I mean, you know, what, what we Baptists like to do around the New Year's, eat some black-eyed peas. Why? So we will have a prosperous New Year. Then the next week, teach about tithing. But um, He says in verse 3, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. In other words, that you're being true. That is how you are walking in truth. You're walking, you're living in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear my children are walking in the truth. Now, this this is kind of important because when we get into the letter, there's a really difficult situation at this church. We don't even know which church it is, but it's a particular church. And... uh, We're going to see in a few minutes, but there's controversy. And Gaius appears to be the one person that John can really get to and and, and communicate with and relate to that might be able to go and, being an insider to that church, fix that problem. Uh, There's no indication that Gaius held any official title. There's absolutely none that he was the pastor or an elder. Um, He probably was a man of means, as we'll see from a few things in in a minute that would make that be that way. But he was one of those. Godly, Christ-like, influential men, and, and women like that too, who had a way of influencing the church. And when things were difficult, John could count on him to bring some sort of stability and some sense of correctness of the path. Those types of folks are important in your church. You've got to have men and women who are spiritually mature and have the ability to influence. Let me just share this with you about about leadership. I hear people all the time talking about leadership this, leadership that. Holding a position doesn't make you a leader. It just means you hold a position. I hear all the time that someone is, you know, this person is a person who's the leader of the church. And I'm like, why? Because they hold this position. Don't like, make them a leader. They may have power because that position gives them power, it doesn't mean them as a leader. Uh, back in 98, uh, when I really started focusing on leadership, and uh, there's some stuff uh, with John Maxwell. Or, and John Maxwell would say this, leadership is influence. There's nothing more, nothing less. You don't have to have a position to be influential, to be a leader. You can have a position that's categorized as leadership and, and never, never have that. The first church I ever passed back in uh, 84, 85, 85, 86. 85, 86. At the time, really fly. In 87, I knew when it was. But uh, in 85 and 86, 14 months at, at Mental Springs Baptist Church, halfway between Lockhart and Luling, I held the position of pastor. I had no leadership. No one would really listen to me about anything. That's so, why wow, I lasted 14 months. It wasn't because I wasn't good. I was good. They just wouldn't listen to me. If you don't have the ability to influence people, let me tell you As a pastor, this is what I look for all the time in a church. Who are godly, spiritual men and women who have a faith in Christ, who don't always have to agree with me. They don't have to agree with me on everything. But who have influence. And it's a good influence. A good influence. Some people have a bad influence. Remember how you used to tell your kids they're a bad influence on you? Some people have a bad influence. I do everything I can to get bad influencers completely out of the picture. Trust me, I do that. It's not, there's an intentionality in what I do. If I think someone in the church is a bad influencer, I, I'm not going to hesitate to try to do everything I can to get their influence nullified and cut out. But people who are good influencers, they're critical, and that's what Gaius was. We all need to be a, a Gaius, a male or a positive influence. Somebody, you need to be the type of person that when I'm in a bind, if need be, I can call on you to help me with a problem. And when I call on you to help me with the problem, not just me, whether it be Mike or Troy, or any, of the, any of the guys. I call on you to help with the problem. You say, I can help you with that. You need to be that type of person. We can depend on. And that will, that will be an influence. So here's what he says. Beloved, notice this. You're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. So here's the thing. And they, that is the strangers, have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on the way in a manner worthy of God. Now, I shared this with you a little bit last week. It reminds you, it is really important back then. They didn't, they didn't have seminaries. They didn't have Bible colleges. And, and uh, uh, somebody like Paul, you know, earlier on than this, or somebody else after that, the other guys, would go and they would find people and kind of help start a church. They would have to leave. And uh, they had to go to the next one. They couldn't. Sometimes Paul would stay a while. Sometimes they would always would stay a little while, but eventually they'd have to go. And so they were dependent on other people who might come along and, and be kind of help and teach. You know, some people aren't good at starting the church, but they were good to come and educate. Well, occasionally I would tell Debbie, which has been a while, a long time ago, that I might think about starting. I like to be a church planter, the guy that goes and plants a church. Because when you start the church, man, you start clean. I've, I always go to churches that have so many problems. You know, somebody always split from one another, and you know, I was at parish and it was like in the first five years, and they were fighting me left and right. And she says, "You can't plant a church because you don't like people enough to do that." <laughs> Valid point. Well taken. So while a guy like me may not be a church planter, a guy like me is the kind of guy that can come to a church that's struggling and help them get what they need to get. And then, you know, when I leave, somebody else can come along, and, man, they can take that church to new heights, and to new places that a guy like me could never do. And the guy can follow them and maybe start planting more churches. All of us have skills. Back then, it was the same way. They needed guys to kind of come, and they would stay for a little while and do a little teaching. And they were kind of itinerant evangelists, but they would go from place to place. But back then, like I told you last week, they, you didn't stay in hotels or inns or places like that. So they would stay with other believers. And it was important that they would help them. That's what the gift of hospitality was, by the way. I, some of you, I hear people all the time talk about having the gift of hospitality because... We think because you can buy cookies at Walmart or Sam's and bring them up to the church and put them on a table, you have the gift of hospitality. You have the gift of being cheap is what you have the gift of, not buying expensive cookie. I'm not pointing you all to do a great job. I just saw you when I pointed at you. You do that all the time. You're fantastic, especially when you buy a little meats and cheeses. We like that. Y'all keep that up. Maybe you try the little meatballs or sausages or the cream puffs. You get in the frozen section at Sam's. That would help a lot. Especially when we have three in, three in one week. Let's break it up a little bit. That's the gift of hospitality. And, and not that we don't have it now, but that's really what they're talking about. It was just, it was a service. Can, can you imagine on a regular basis just having strange people come into your house and spend a couple of days and you give them a place to sleep? And remember, you don't, they're not, they don't, there's no 4,500 square foot homes like y'all all got. These were little six, seven square uh, hundred square foot homes that they may have, something like that. They didn't have 20 rooms and four bathrooms. It was tight. And you feed them, and they didn't have a lot of money most of the time, and that was the gift of hospitality. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine doing that. I guarantee you, I don't have that gift. I don't like family staying in my home. Why would I want strangers staying in my home? Me, Debbie, and two dogs, and that's all I care about. And He would bring them in, and he said, then you send them on their way. And you did it, he said, in a manner worthy of God. Wouldn't you like to be able to know that whatever your spiritual gift is, whatever it may be, you do it in a manner worthy of God. Isn't that cool? He said, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Now, that means from the pagan world. In other words, when they went out, they didn't expect the pagans to take care of them. Not Gentile believers. Just they, sometimes the term Gentile is just pagan. Non-believers. They didn't expect non-believers to do the work, take care of them. But y'all took care of them. They didn't have to do other things. He said, that's so good. And therefore, we ought to support such men that they may be fellow workers with the truth. Now, last week he talked about do not support false teachers. So you have to make a distinction whether the teaching is true or not. If they're false teachers, go back to Second John and boot them. <laughs> but if they're true teachers, welcome them in. By the way, that's true across the board you ought, if, I, if my, me and the other pastors, are, we teach truth, you ought to be accepting and, and, and you ought to embrace that truth. Even if you don't always agree with us, you don't have, you don't have to agree upon everything. I, I told someone the other day, at some point, everybody gets mad at me. That's all right. Some, most of them get over it. Those that don't, they don't. You don't have to agree all the time on everything, but you've got to be accepting of one another. You've got to love one another. And when you have people, whether it be your connect group leader or a Sunday school class teacher, or the people that teach in Iwana, or the people that teach in Upstreet, when when they do a good job and they're connecting, they're teaching truth and they're loving, you embrace that. Be thankful you have it. All right then, in verse 9. This is where it really gets tough. You almost could put a however between verse 8 and 9. I wrote something to the church, but they're off. Tr- Diotrephes, there's two ways to pronounce that in the Greek, biblical Greek or classical Greek. We'll go with biblical Greek. The Ophotrys, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what they say. I wrote something to the church. But Diotrophes, who loves to be first, does not accept what we say. So what you have here then is a case of conflict between someone who's surged to a position of influence versus the last standing apostle, John. Can you imagine being in a church and you and John disagree on how the church ought to be doing things and you you have the unmitigated gall to think John is wrong? And that's, that's exactly what was happening. That's exactly what was going on. John says, I wrote something, probably dealing with these people that were coming through the teachers. He didn't like that. He didn't accept what we had to say. Most likely, what he didn't like was this. John probably sent some people. And a little bit later, he's going to talk about um, Demetrius. He sent Demetrius and others to do some teaching, probably. And the apostrophes rejected him. said, no, you're not teaching here. Because he didn't want anyone else having influence. He was, the, going to be, he was the only guy that was going to be influential. He was the only one. No one else was going to have that influence. He was going to dominate. And the people were letting him. Maybe, but evidently Gaius would be one of the few that would oppose him. So John says, I wrote a letter. You see, you, actually, you're, you're seeing conflict right here. You're seeing an example of conflict in the church. He wrote a letter. And he, he wouldn't read it. He cast the letter away evidently. He didn't want John having any influence whatsoever. And, and he didn't want other people coming and teaching or doing anything that would supplant him because of his immaturity and his arrogance that wouldn't allow that to happen. And so he, he kind of did this. Now, it, it may be that this was a, a little bit of a conflict of just of the structure of the church, you know, up until, you know, up to now, basically. As long as there were apostles, the, the people accepted the apostolic authority of the church. The apostles, John, Paul, Peter, all those, James, uh, uh, Thomas, Philip, didn't matter who. They, 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 were the, they were the guys Jesus sent. I mean, listen, if Jesus sent these guys, including James's brother and Paul, who in their right mind is going to oppose these? Because I'm pretty sure no one else was ever called directly by Jesus. Pretty sure. That didn't happen anymore. It takes a lot of arrogance and immaturity to do that. We don't have the apostles anymore, but we still have the apostolic witness. It's called the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now Mark and Luke weren't apostles, but Mark was influenced by Peter, and Luke was companion to Paul. There was that influence. Uh, Whoever wrote Hebrews, the early church recognized they had some sort of apostolic connection. You, You to accept those books, those 27 books, they had to be written by an apostle or somebody affirmed and closely connected to the apostles. Mark, both Paul and Peter, closely connected to Mark. Luke, closely connected to Paul. And then whoever wrote Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote it. Uh, Some think Luke wrote it, some think Barnabas wrote it. Those are probably the two leading contenders. But we still have the apostolic authority. That's why we always appeal to what Scripture says. I have people all the time come up and and starts saying stuff to me, or, or start, this is what they believe, or what do you think about that, or, or whatever. And I always, and not always, but a lot of times I'll say, well, where in the Scripture do you see that coming from? And they'll all start quoting the Old Testament, and I'm going to say, time out a second. Find it in the New, we got somewhere we can go. It's not that the Old Testament isn't important, it is. But what I always tell you about the Old Testament, it does something. The Old Testament points to Jesus. So in that sense, it's important. Other than creation, <laughs> and even not only there, but also the New Testament, and some attributes of God and sinfulness of man, most of my doctrines coming from the New Testament. And when it comes from the Old Testament, it's because the New Testament has filtered it. Paul has talked about it, Jesus, Jesus talked about it, or affirmed it. I like this. Uh, Andy Stanley says this, and I agree 100%. The reason you and I as Gentiles, believers, accept the Old Testament It's because Jesus accepted the Old Testament. That's the only reason. The only reason you accept the Old Testament. Because Jesus affirmed it. And because he affirmed it, we affirm it. He affirmed it because it was true, because it points to him, and because he's the author of it. (laughs) But you think about that. Now, I say that because that apostolic message is important. If the only way you can come up with some idea you have It's because you take a few passages in the Old Testament and you twist it together and you try to dip it quickly through the New Testament so it gets just a little drip of some letter of Paul or some little bit of touch of gospel and that's your teaching. You probably have a real problem on your head. So that is why that apostolic message is so critical. John says, For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words. So he says he unjustly, he wrongly accuses us of wicked words. He's not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brothers who come. He forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So when people come to teach, he doesn't accept them. He forbids others to accept them. Kicks them out. Sounds like a dictator. Sounds like a petty tyrant. Especially when those others were coming from John. That's pretty tough. Now, listen, I, I have no problem understanding that when people teach wrong things or things that shouldn't be taught, we, we deal with it. I deal with it. That's, that's, you call me to serve you in such a way so that when I serve you, I protect the integrity of the gospel message. And those guys did that. You, you ever notice, you ever just notice how tough Peter and John and Paul are? And Peter in Acts sometimes, <laughs> did you ever read Acts 5 when he told in Ananias and Sapphira, you're about to drop dead? That's power, man. I just like, man, I wish I had apostolic power sometimes. <laughs> drop dead. I say it. I say it all the time, just drop dead. They never do. <laughs> Paul, man, Paul tough. Here's John. John's old guy. He, I don't even, he doesn't even know if he's going to make it. If I can make it, brother, if I make it, I'm going to take care of business. They're not easy. And he says, this is why. Look what he does. He, he accuses John with wicked words. John was with Jesus. Then when John sends someone, he doesn't accept them, doesn't let you accept them, kicks them out. Verse 11, he says, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And the one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. He's accusing this guy of being evil. Man, I don't know what (laughs) the the Trees was thinking, but man, he was in the wrong boat to be sailing in. He's sailing opposite of John. John says, that's evil. Don't confuse the tape. By the way, just because a person has a position that allows them to have power or even influence doesn't mean they use it wisely or carefully. Doesn't mean it's good. I tell you all the time, you always have to be sure what I teach you is, true. You should always make sure that the pastor teaches truth. Like I said, you may not agree with me on all the little stuff, that's okay. That's no, you know, no big deal. But when, when, when I proclaim something as being the word of God, man, when I, when I get up Sunday and I preach from John chapter 20, and I preach that you need to be reading your Bible or the screen or your smart device or something, and you need to be making sure that when I'm reading it that I'm, and I'm sharing, I'm sharing truth. Now, just because you may disagree with some little fine point here or there or, or, or something like that, that's not the same thing. But when I talk about the gospel and I talk about the resurrection, you you know what's true. It tells you there. It's not complicated. I I read sometimes. All these guys trying to explain what the New Testament says, and they make it so complicated. They make the Jesus in the Gospels, I just tell you, Jesus, he didn't say it much complicated. Now, we don't always understand a lot because we're not in that culture and in that time, and so we missed the context because we didn't live there, and so some of that things didn't make sense to us. But, but when Jesus talked, and when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, they weren't, they weren't writing to seminary students. They weren't writing to a bunch of egghead professors. They were writing to us, people, people less educated than us. Because overall, y'all are a fairly educated group. Some of you don't use it very much, but you're fairly educated. But he, he wrote to simple folks, man, just simple folks. It's not complicated yet it's all true. He says, don't imitate them. Demetrius has received good testimony from everyone. Because he's sending Demetrius. He probably sent him earlier. In fact, I seen, most think he sent Demetrius earlier. And that's who Gaius, which, I mean, uh, who was rejected by Diotrephes, rejected. He said, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself. And we had our testimony. You know, our testimony is true. John's saying, look, you know what I teach Gaius is true. There's evidence that what John has taught is true. John, by now, he has written at least two or three books. Probably hadn't written Revelation yet. I may have written it, but probably hadn't. And he says, I wrote a gospel, and I wrote an epistle called 1 John. He didn't put that, but he had. What he writes is true. He has witnessed it. He begins, he begins his epistle by saying, I touched Jesus. I heard Jesus. I saw Jesus. I proclaimed it to you. In and, and the end of his gospel, he says, I saw all these things. And I'm telling you what they are so you can believe and believe you might have life in his name. He says, listen, I speak the truth. And I'm telling you, Demetrius is a good boy. You can, you can trust him. I'm sending him. Can you imagine how cool it would be to have someone like John vouch for you? That's amazing. He says, verse 13, I had many things to write to you. But I'm not one to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly. And we'll speak face to face. And yeah, that means he'll be coming along with all the rest of them too. And he says, peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends by name. So when you come to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, these great three letters he wrote. At the heart of these letters is the passion of this old apostle to help people believe in Jesus. That was the passion of his gospel. It's the passion of the apocalypse of Revelation. And he writes these instructional letters, especially First John, as, as a kind of having written the gospel and told the story of Jesus. He's, this, is, this is what you need to know as a believer. He didn't, he didn't write First John. He wrote the gospel of John basically so lost people could be saved. He wrote it to the church, to believers, but so that they could use it to help lost people come to Christ. He wrote First John for the believers. He said, this is, this is the secret. This is the key. In your faith, believe that Jesus is the Christ; He is God in the flesh. You believe that. That's the most important doctrine you have: is the resurrected Jesus is Lord. And in your life, you love people; you love them no matter what, and you love and you love them. And you write Second, Third John. He's saying, when people reject that Jesus is the Christ you reject them as a position of leadership. And when people fail to show the love they should show, like in 3 John, 3, 3 John, you deal with them as well. The dominating themes of a church should be to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and to love the people you proclaim it to and with. If you don't proclaim Jesus is Lord above all else, And in doing so, love the people you proclaim it with with, and the people you proclaim it to. You are not functioning as a follower of Christ and as a church. I uh, have read numerous books over the years about how, how churches should grow, what they should do. Been to clinics, talk clinics, all that stuff. This is the one thing I know. Regardless of their denominational ties, regardless of whether they're traditional or contemporary, regardless of what version of the Bible they dominantly use, or predominantly use, the churches that proclaim Jesus and love people, reach people, and grow. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. So that's what we should strive for. That's what we should try to do. All right. I'm going to let you out a couple minutes early. I don't even feel like answering questions. So y'all are through. And I'll see you tomorrow night. Hopefully. Get your tickets. And if you don't have a ticket, come anyways.